You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. In the mid-80s, Baluy Sum had hits on both sides of the Atlantic, with imagination and some people. Born Neville Keithley, his route to success was anything but overnight. In part one of this two-part interview, he talks about his early life, how he honed his songwriting craft and the near misses he had before his eventual success. A charming and affable man, this is a real insight into the drive and courage it took to achieve that success. Neville Keeley, Baluy Sum, welcome. I, actually, you just mentioned it, this email that you sent me, and I was thinking earlier, I, I knew I'd met you, and I'm actually getting closer to where we must have met, because you mentioned Mark Booth, who was the managing director of MTV, who was a good friend of yours, and Christiana Backer, who was one of the presenters. All of you. I knew all of you really well, but I had hair. And, <laughs> and, and, um, and, you know, it's very different when you're 30 years on or 40 years on and you've got no hair. So, uh, I mean, you look still similar. I can look completely different. So um, it'll come back to you in a minute. But Mark Booth was one of my, he still is one of my best mates. I'm godfather to his children. And he, right at the beginning, I remember coming out to your Camden place all the time. Um, and going out in those days with Christiana and Mark, you know, four nights a week. So um, I, I remember we'd met loads, all those wonderful parties. That's what I was going to say, because I knew yeah. MTV had yeah. some brilliant parties, didn't it, at the yeah, beginning? The best, amazing. Yes. I know, they were completely wild. So and if you remember, one of those. Steve Fagnoli as well was around, um, Prince's manager. He was in our gang, and we used to go out. And I, you were there. I remember there was one over in um, West, Westwood, Westwood Studios, and there was one. Anyway, we don't want to hear about the parties, but we know each other. <laughs> we do. We do. So listen, um, we're born in the same year as well. So we have ah. we have this sort of growing up in Britain uh, yeah. in common. You're from South London. I'm from yeah. Chelmsford, which is uh, yeah. northeast of London. Um, but, you know, London, the centre of London would have been, you know, the attraction for us yeah. uh, when we were young. But I want to talk about the earlier times and just ask you what sort of music did your parents listen to, and when did your tastes diverge? Well, funny enough, my, my, there, was, there was no music really in my house. My, my mother brought us up, and she wasn't really very musical. But, um, but I went to boarding school where there was every kind of music, and all the big boys, and um, uh, it, it was a mixed boarding school, but I remember the guy, everyone was into music, because in those days, as you know, there was nothing else. I mean, it was music or nothing. And... Um, so you have a, quite a diverse taste, a lot of heavy rock, and and everyone had, you know, there, were, there was there was one guy I remember um, who was expelled for plugging his electric guitar into the chapel sound system in the middle of the night, and the whole area listening to this blasting. No, so it was pretty, it was pretty full on music, uh, but I was. Um, you know, I mean, 71, 72, David Bowie was my thing. And then all the Roxy music and everything. But of course, I loved, there was so much of it. You know, if you think Jethro Tull, even the heavier stuff, the original Genesis, the, um, you know, I mean, everything. There was so much music, wasn't there? Um, I, I'll come to the, the music in a second, but I just want to ask you, because I know that my both my brothers were were sent to boarding school one wanted to go the other one was a sort of rebellious had yeah. masses of fights in school and yeah. I think my mum just wanted Back to get off. somewhere else yeah what, did you feel actually that your parents had pushed you away because I've I've read a lot about 
young people when they go to boarding school, it sort of breaks the umbilical cord to the parents earlier than later. Oh, it definitely does that. It definitely does. Once you send your kids to boarding school, they've got another agenda. I mean, even now, I, I see it with my friends who send their kids to boarding school. You are making a decision um, and the kids are going to still love you and they're still going to come home all the time because in those days we didn't come home all the time. But you are making a decision and school becomes their life. Sorry, anyone listening who is thinking about, I mean, I, I haven't sent mine to boarding school, but I don't need to, you know, so, um, but you're absolutely right. Also, parenting is different. I mean, you, you're, you know, you, your parent yeah. got two young girls, I think. Yeah. And um, parenting is much different. Back then, I think parenting didn't really exist as a term, did it? You know, my no. father <laughs> didn't know what school I went to. I mean, I really he didn't really have any contact with my father at all. Yeah. And it was quite a sort of odd thing yeah. today to think that that would happen. Were your parents I, very involved in your My life? mother was. My, fa my father wasn't. You know, he left when I, we, we, I was three and my my brother was a baby but um so it was my brother my mother brought us up and we were it was quite a lot for her to bring up two boys I mean remember boys are always fighting and in the 70s they were difficult <laughs> so um I was sent to boarding school my brother went got a scholarship to um Alain's in South London he was super clever so um uh he went on and did great academic things and I just was on the rampage from the age of 10. Now Thinking about it, 10's very young, but I didn't think I was young at 10. I thought I had it under control. So, um, you know, probably I wouldn't send a kid to school at 10, but I went, you know, I loved it. You, you mentioned um, Bowie and getting into Bowie, which is something that we, you know, of, I'm going to say of our age, but it's actually yeah. across these generations, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But definitely of our age, that Bowie was the phenomena. And for me, he represented, you know, like Bowie was the alien, the other, and he yeah. sort of represented my route out of the yes. life that I was in. Yeah. What was he yeah. for you? Well, the same, because it's the first thing you hear. You see, if you think about it, we're the same age. So about 12, suddenly you hear, and you're aware of music. I mean, I was, you know, and... The first thing I heard was David Bowie. I mean, Starman. I mean, there are other things around me because the older kids, but this just jumped out. I remember Starman on the radio and thinking, this is just the most incredible thing I've ever heard. I mean, or been a part of, and it, it makes you dream and it makes you go off and, and be in another world. And so um, then I was, I was hooked. I had to, you know, eventually write songs and whatever. But you're absolutely right. But Bowie was a very special time. And if you go back to kids a bit older than us, theirs was heavy rock, you know, and, you know, it's the thing that sparked you, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, with Bowie, I mean, I remember I can, you know, recite practically all the lyrics about yeah, the first five I can albums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did I, you I, also look at who were making the records at that point? Or did of course that come I did. Later? Yeah, so yeah, of course well, yeah, of course I did. I knew everything about everyone and... um and that's why when I finally got to New York and started finally making my album properly again, remaking it from the first time, um, you know, I knew every, I knew these people's inside leg measurement um, that because they, so um, yes, I did because it was so important. I wanted to know how he made his records and, and where he made them and what was influencing. I wanted to know everything. And like you, I knew every lyric up until Let's Dance. And then after Let's Dance, I think that, um, well, by that stage, I'd sort of met him. Well, I had met him and I was working with the people that he had been working with. So I don't, you know, I wasn't so interested in the, the next albums. It was, a, you know, I had my own path, you know. Now, was it Bowie that sort of inspired you to, to pick up a guitar and, and write songs or to just, you know, just to sort of get into music at an early age? 
um, I, do you, I mean, I don't say it was actually Bowie. I mean, I, I learned the guitar with, um, uh, it was a route, it was an escape, I'm not, I don't want to say escape route. I, I mean, I wasn't going to do anything academic. I wanted to be the actual, I wanted to be in show business. And I had a Beatles songbook and I learned the guitar with the Beatles songbook. And I recommend that to any kid who wants to learn the guitar, get the Beatles, you know, songbook. And that'll teach you easily how to learn the guitar. Uh, you don't need to be clever, you know. And um, so I started with that. And um, I wasn't so interested in playing David Bowie's songs because I didn't want to copy David Bowie. Um, I wanted it to be my own thing, you know. I didn't. I was never interested in being a clone of anyone, really, you know, if, if that, that makes sense. Yeah. I, when you were 18, you left school. Um, that must have been something like 77. That's sort of the early... Yeah, it was... Yeah, 77, 78, I think, end of 70. Well, did um, yeah, you have to leave point. home at that point? No, no, I never saw the point. I, I didn't have any money. I mean, the thing, the thing is, um, um, I lived in South London anyway. So, um, no, I didn't leave home until I was, you know, much later because um, I then, you know, eventually started travelling and playing and touring and things like that. And my poor mother, you know. I always remember my mother gave up smoking and drinking uh, the, the month I left home, which I always thought was... And I and I didn't realize until about a year later. I was, he wasn't smoking, wasn't drinking. I was like, what the hell? No, and uh, yes, I think that's probably quite telling, isn't it? Um, so um, no, I didn't leave home. No, I didn't, had no money. And of course, I left school, you know, armed with a load of songs. I, by this stage, I was going to record companies and A and R men with my guitar. I couldn't afford demos, and um, it was it wasn't working. So it took another two or three years afterwards before anyone started to listen seriously to me. Um, and uh, no, I had no money, and it was it was really hard actually because everyone writes you off. But that mm -hmm. era is a very interesting era because the late seventies and we go yeah. in and, and the early eighties. Yeah, we're yeah. going from an era which had okay, we had like the three day week where we had yeah. no power in the mid seventies. I think that was or seventy three, seventy five, and then a bit later, there's there's you know mass unemployment. Yeah. Uh, there's then racism. There's misogyny, yeah. homophobia, you know, I mean, it has the whole works, but there is also <laughs> yeah. this yeah. group uh, of subculture, which yeah. in a way went round all those things. Were you yeah. in that sort of No, no, I was really bad at it. I mean, I was, um, it's sort of like, I was aware of it. I mean, um, I was... I was, a, you know, I was a painter and decorator. I was a landscape gardener, a minicab driver, all just to make enough money to rehearse the band or to do the demo. Um, I wasn't a passionate, sorry, Paul Weller, uh, you know, or, or whatever. I wasn't ang angry. I had my own agenda. Um, and I sort of skirted around it, like you said. I mean, and I didn't, I mean, I wasn't from Birmingham, so I didn't dress up as a new romantic. I wasn't um, no, I, I, I remember, I didn't know, <laughs> no, I just carried on. Solo artist called Neville Keithley writing nice songs, which of course is doomed, you know, absolutely doomed. You're never going to get anywhere, you know. So when you're saying you're writing nice songs, what when you went to the record companies, I mean, this is quite a long period, wasn't it? A period of about four yeah. years where you're really yeah, trying, yeah. To, trying to make yeah. it. I just wondered what you learned in that period and what you learned yeah. from rejection. Well, I, it toughened me up, you know, I mean, when I left school, I thought it'd be a, six months I'd have a record deal, you know, and of course it was, if you know, my first record came out when I was about five years later, but, but, 
um, it toughened me up. It it made made me go home and learn my skill. I had no choice. I mean, you sit there uh, and you write from eight in the morning until you know one in the morning, and you you know because I I was living at home. I was under a lot of pressure. You know, no money. Blah 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 blah. Odd jobs, um, and uh, so I I tried to get my skill sort my skill, learn songs. So I'd go to see publishers. They say, yeah, much better, Neville. <sighs> You know what you're talking about, and then I go home and get another appointment six months later with another one. It it was soul destroying, but I was luckily I was young and so stupid I had no idea how tough it was. You know, what what did you specifically learn then? You said it hardened you up, but what did these rejections well, and also what you were doing? What did you really learn for life? Do you think? Well, you, you know the thing is the first thing is it's really important the the innocence of youth. I mean, ignorance, ignorance, innocence. I don't know what it was. I mean, I sat there and I went home. Right, okay. What's Bruce Springsteen done? Well, he's written a song like that, so I'd write a Bruce Springsteen song. And what's Elton John done? So I'd write an Elton John song. I mean, I wrote and wrote and wrote, and that is the key to everything. It's the more you write the better you get. And there's no way around that. Don't think about productions and don't, I never thought about productions or anything. I just thought, does the song work? Does it flow? It's all about the song. And I wrote them all on acoustic guitar. So they had to work because the melodies, if they weren't strong, they wouldn't stand out. And um, so, you know, imagination I wrote when I was 19, uh, you know, um, you know, it didn't come out until I was 24, 25. So that gives you, you know, gives you an idea. So, um, yeah, and I, it's just about working. You can't do it on a Mac. I had a, I worked with a management company about 20 years ago and, and you know, they'd get oh, DVDs, you know, CDs would come in and, you know, I wrote this song last week and I know it's a hit, you know, really? Because it doesn't work like that, does it? What about Lose It To You? Because that was the first song you recorded, I think, which is actually, I've just watched it the, the, this morning on, on um, YouTube. You can, there's a, your, the records on there and you can- I haven't, uh, I haven't heard it All right. heard for 40 years. No, I, 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 the only reason I know about it is because someone added it to my Wikipedia about six months ago. Uh, I must listen to it. I, I'm sorry, it sounds pretty horrible, doesn't it? I, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I don't think so at all. I mean, I think it's identifiable, but it's not completely, it's not, I mean, I know it's under the name Neville Rowe, but it's yeah. not Balooey Sum, as, you know, yeah. we get to know yeah. Balooey Sum, but it's definitely on the way. And I, I just wonder, because oh. even with that, you know, you worked with uh, people yes. who were, oh, yeah. of, I would say, Oh yeah, um, Roland and Kurt. Maybe not at the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, Roland and Kurt. Well, so they weren't at my leave at the time. They were in graduate, and they were, and they, you know, and and they were with the same publishing company of mine, and they was they were groveling around like me. I mean, graduate. They had a couple of singles, I think, on Polydor. Um, I mean, I mean, I don't want to offend any graduate fans. It, it certainly wasn't Tears for Fears, you know. Um, but uh, Manny was a great drummer, and Roland and Kurt were great. Um, and they had a the thing is I got I got an it Darren Hatch helped me produce it or produced it and he had a connection in Bath they because they were all from Bath you see so we went trundling off to Bath I've completely forgotten all this by the way and uh, and um, David Lord produced it with Darren and um, all the musos were down they all played on it I think they played on the demo for Imagination as well later on but I'm you know it's all I switched off to music remember for thirty years so it's all. I mean they were all musicians who were on the up. 
Um, yes. You know, well, they so weren't on the up then. They weren't to uh, the then. Oh, I'm sorry to dampen your enthusiasm. They were like me, groveling around with great, great ideals, all thinking they were going to change the world, to coin a phrase. And, um, but we hadn't actually got to that stage yet. So what you were know? your expectations but, at the time? Change the world like them. But I mean, and of course, and you have this incredible confidence that, you know, you really are. This is it. This is it. Lose it to you was it, you know. And I probably felt I was more up than them at the time because I was recording a single and they weren't. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. But they were great guys, and I still see um, Kurt, well, once at Blue Moon, and um, Darren, and yeah, it was all part of the process. Yeah, talking about that process, because to be honest, I mean, the chorus in that is brilliant. I mean, I, I actually I really liked it. it. So I'm like, this is, yeah, <laughs> this morning. And I, I think it's because I had a different expectation because I thought, okay, this must be like the first attempt and it's the one where he's going, yeah. oh God, I don't, you know, this isn't what I yeah. want to do or want to be. But actually you can really feel that there's- I'm very flattered. The chorus is really I'm good. Very, I'm very flattered, thank you. I'm going to have a listen. But the thing is that, um, yeah, but realistically I wouldn't have had Roland, Kurt, Manny, Darren, David Lord had done the Corgis and um, and had worked a lot with, um, you know, um, uh, you know, Genesis, um, <laughs> Peter Gabriel. Um, so um, I was working with good people. So um, I'm assuming I'm assuming that they lifted my song to their level. Yeah, I'm also assuming that they also <laughs> saw something in you, whether whether you, you um, say it today or not. <laughs> they obviously saw something in you, otherwise they wouldn't have bothered. I mean, people, you know, yeah, people don't no, bother when they yeah. don't believe in something at all. So I don't think, think they were paid. They weren't paid. So, I mean, they didn't have any money. So um, they must have done it for the right reasons. Yeah. When that record um, came out, what did you learn from it about your style, your look, the way you performed, the way you sung, that you could change? Well, I don't think that I deliberately, I think I was back to writing. And the, but the good thing was that it, I think that, I, like you just said, I think other people um, started doing demos with me and getting me studio time. And I was starting to move to the next level of, um, people taking me a bit more seriously. I mean, I still look like Neville Keithley, Neville Rowe. I still had curly, you know, normal hair and I wasn't a rock and roll star, but I was, you know, I was, I was completely unstoppable. You know, nothing would stop me. I would do anything to get to the next level. And so if there was an opportunity, I would take it. And this would probably leading towards my, the big moment when, I mean, I had another single out, I think called Wartime that no one ever heard. Um, but then um, Steve Elson, who was a good songwriter, is a great songwriter, Paul Harrison, the keyboard player from the Corgis, and started doing demos with these guys. And at the same time as um, I, I thought, if you want me to carry on talking, I'll tell you what happened. Um, um, I, um, 
I had an aunt who lived in a cottage in the middle of nowhere in North Wales, who was, bless her, she was a bit of an alcoholic. And so I'd go up there and do some work on her house occasionally. She was a, a fantastic, very eccentric lady. And we, my brother and I would go up there and she'd pay us, basically. She, you know, bunged us some money to do painting and, you know, she had some cash and whatever. And one day she said, well, you're pretty useless at doing what you're doing because you've been doing it for three years and nothing's happened. What do you need? And I said, well, I'm a solo artist. I need a band. Well, how much does a band cost? I said, I don't want to be in a band because I had auditioned loads of bands and they'd always gone wrong. So I said, well, I've got to pay them for the rehearsal time. I've got to pay them. And she wrote a check for like 500 pounds, which was a fortune in those days. You know, I was like, you could buy a car, go on holiday for three months and, you know, do up the house on that, couldn't you? But it was a fortune. So and then, you know, at a later stage, he bung me some more money. So I came back to London. I knew what to do, put my band together and went out to try and get gigs. And, um, and um, the band sounded amazing. The songs had been honed. You say, lose it to you. This is a couple of years on. So you're talking about a lot of the songs that are on the first album. Um, they, they, were, they, were, they were played out rehearsed every day for, for a month with this young band. The band looked amazing. Um, and I had a whole load of gigs lined up. And the first problem was, the big problem was, I didn't have a name. So this brings me to the blurry something. I was still Neville Keithley and everyone was like, you can't be Neville Keithley, it's a ridiculous name. Solo artist doesn't work. Um, you can't, you're not a band, so you've got to come up with a name, Neville Rowe, you know. So, well, I thought, you know, and, and it was just, I was two weeks away from the first gig, you know, in, in the Embassy Club. And, and um, so it was the Bluey something band, but I never got, the Kins, the Blues Brothers was out and the Kinsman song, Louie Louie was in it. And I mean, you know, we were, we were I was clawing every direction and uh, it, it was Bluey song. That's the name. That's what happened. There's nothing... You know, the other the divine moment was I went on stage with my hair like this and froze at the first gig, which was at a place called Monkbridge in German Street. And so afterwards, everyone said, you know, that was terrible. You're terrible on stage. You've got no stagecraft. You're the worst. You've got to do something. And um, Please, wait a minute. Who said that to you? with the whole everyone i mean most of the audience were friends this is the worst gig we've ever been to you're just i just stood there i froze so um so at the same time as blade runner had just come out and you know it's very striking it's now it's common last but you know those days to have white hair was really strange so i had a girlfriend and she she knew a hairdresser and I sat there for eight hours while they dyed my hair white you know it went yellow it went green eventually it came out white my eyebrows, everything. And I went home and, you know, people don't recognize you. You looked, I mean, just imagine there's no one with white hair in those days. I mean, Billy Idol had a sort of, but he wasn't really, you know, he was an American. He wasn't, I mean, it wasn't really in my, our zone. So I had, so I had white hair, a new name and um, two or three shots of vodka. And I went on stage as Bolivi Sun and that was it. And then, you know, who approached you with the, with the Barrow brothers, the ones that were looking after Duran Duran? Did you approach them or they approached you? But at this stage, things are starting to sort of be a bit more, the, people are starting to be a bit more interesting. But the, 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 the great thing was that the Embassy Club, we had the first gig and <clears throat> my manager at the time lived opposite a school somewhere in Hertfordshire. And um, he was chummy with, he was, we were all much younger and he was chummy with the six formers and he, he rented a coach and, uh, 
put a couple of cases of beer on the coach. And um, so for the first gig at the embassy club, there was a big bundle of kids outside. There was a crowd. So the record companies that we'd managed to get along, including, um, I think, um, the guy who worked for the Barrow Brothers, not the actual Barrow Brothers at that stage, um, uh, where they couldn't get into the gig. You know, we had to, someone had to go out and get them in because there were so many people at the, you know, there were, there was a hundred kids there at the embassy club, only took 200 or something ridiculous. So, um, so there was a perception that it was time, you know, it was my window to get a record deal. And there were a couple of A&R men there, you know, some love it, some hate it. Um, but I was off and running. And then, you know, within sort of six or seven months, and then the Barrows were like, ooh, what's this? They came down and they liked the songs and that was the next level, you know, next stage. What did they promise you? Um, well, they were very, very powerful at the time. I mean, they were managing Duran Duran. And, and to anyone who's listening to this, Duran Duran were the biggest band in the world. You know, they had number one albums in America, UK, all around the world. They were, they were on their right at the top of their, they were on their way right up. And um, uh, there was a tour coming up the following year and their idea was to, you know, put me on support for the tour in the States. Um, but it didn't happen because my record wasn't ready. My record turned out, my first attempt at the album was a disaster um, for lots of different reasons. Um, so it wasn't ready, so it didn't happen. But um, they were very supportive. I mean, they were really supportive because they were song people. So Paul and Michael, they weren't interested in, they were just like, get the songs right, you know? They That's were very really fascinating because, you know, Target Practice that came out wasn't really, yeah. you know, wasn't a success yeah. initially. Yeah. Um, you weren't happy with no. the recordings that you were doing. Yeah. And I just wondered if you went through a phase of thinking, God, I've, you know, I've invested such a long period of my life. Yeah. 500 quid from my aunt wasted <laughs> and here I am yeah. and it's not happening so what yeah well I was in trouble I was in trouble and and basically the manager had to go because he was a, a madman bless him I mean you know his, his intentions had been fantastic but it wasn't working I was spent a fortune with EMI with Parlophone great Dave Ambrose A&R man with they were so supportive EMI were always fantastic right Liberos and then I thought right I've got to do something. I'm on my last. So uh, what had happened is that this, this version of the target practice you heard had been mixed by Michael Barbiero and Steve Thompson in New York. And I'd gone over there and I said, look, I'm in real trouble. This, my, my arm's not worked. It's, I've spent 10 years getting here. It's rubbish. It's not what I wanted. Um, and they said, well, I know what we could do. This is how it should sound. This is, and it was just amazing suddenly I was with people who were positive and I, and I said, well, I've got to persuade EMI. So um, I came back to London and that's when I put my persuading cap on to persuade Dave Ambrose to let me go to New York and, um, and record a song, a, a single. And that it was imagination, but. But that persuasion then was money. You wanted, you had to get money out of them. or did well, you It was always about the budget. I mean, at this stage, you know, they'd spent half a million by this stage on the album. It was rubbish. I mean, I mean, it was just not going anywhere. I mean, bits of it I've salvaged in the end and went back with Steve and Michael. We, we, you know, some people had been, no, some people I did myself. No, okay, yeah. So, um, so what happened was um, Dave was like, all right, okay, but make sure it's a hit. 
So I said, of course, it's going to be a hit, Dave. And I always remember the great thing, fax machines. This is a little story. It's absolutely true. In those days, fax machines were new. And I remember that Steve and um, I said, we've got to make it special, Steve, because, um, you know, we need we need an angle. So he said, well, I've met Carlos Alama and he really wants to work on some stuff we're doing. And I said, OK, great, Carlos, my hero. But David's uh, Bowie's uh, guitarist and um, and dream guy and um and Carlos said well I've never worked with Bernard Edwards and Tony Thompson of course I've known Niall for years but they're in town and they would like to do something we've never done something together we've known each other all our lives right and so from Chic um so they said I'll get Carlos I'll get Niall and Bernard and Tony and I came back to London and said listen I've got they were chic were pretty big you know I mean uh and Tony and uh, Tom and uh you know they were pretty big at the time and Carlos so Dave said all right we'll make sure it's a hit send send the budget over and I always remember the facts came through this is the funny bit of the story the facts came through and it was $34,000 it came through to the publishers so I remember tipexing out of a zero whacking it off to EMI all blurred you remember faxes were blurred $3,400 he said fantastic and it's good value too so I, I got on the plane went to New York did imagination and walk away in, in on a Saturday afternoon live vocals got on the plane Sunday evening came back to EMI Monday morning said there's you but what a process it had taken a long time and that's it for part one. In part two, we follow the highlights of Neville or Louis Sum's career and how he dealt with life after he pulled back from the limelight. I'll see you then. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. <laughs> 